0: Bibles this morning to Matthew, we am going to be in the book of Matthew this morning as we are five days away from Christmas. We put a few presents underneath the tree last night and this morning Addie saw it and on the way to church I said, she's like, I want to open them. I said, well, we have, you have five days and she went, with oh. <laughs> the greatest expression, uh, see those things again through through the eyes of my kids. It's just a wonderful experience. <clears throat> when we think about Christmas, we, we often have to answer and we often get asked what the question, uh, what child is this? What an appropriate song that leads right into my sermon this morning, what child is this? Uh, Recently, I don't know if many of you or any of you have heard, the Victorian premier has recently said that Christians who believe in the Bible are bigots. And what we believe is quackery because we accept God's definition of sin. We accept God's definition of gender. And there's a battle, brethren, battle for the truth. The truth, by the way, in case you've forgotten, is reality as God defines it. Right? It's God sees it. And now, while error in its basic sense is an alternate reality, right? It's a lie of Satan. And that's a battle that's been going on since the beginning. In fact, one of the main themes of Scripture is the truth of God versus the lies, plural, of Satan. And so when we think about the truth... Man rejects God's truth, rejects God's definition of just about everything. Just a few examples. Man, the, the Bible, God's Word, says that mankind is born into sin. The world says that mankind is innately good. God says that sin in its, in its essence is failing to live up to His perfect standard. While the world says that, well, we all make mistakes, and God's going to just accept us as we are. Now, God says that homosexuality is a sin. The world says that it is a alternate lifestyle. God says that a person's gender is determined by him in the womb, while the world says it is a fluid concept. God says that sexual activity outside of marriage is fornication. People in the world say, well, I'm just living with my partner. God condemns pride and selfishness over and over in His Word, and the world redefines pride and selfishness as self-esteem and exalts it. Drunkenness has been refined and and excused as I'm just having a few with my mates. You see, He goes on and on and on. The world will not accept Truth, God's truth. And John 3 tells us why. It's because they love the darkness, they love their sin, and they hate the light. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the world believes that the truth of God is foolishness or quackery. They believe, the world believes that you're fools for believing in a a virgin birth, an incarnate God who died on a cross for your sins and ascended to the right hand of the Father. See, every day, people blasphemy God. They say that they have no sin, and 1 John 1, verse 10 says that he who says he has no sin calls God a liar. You see, the world has substituted the lies of Satan for the truth of God. And you see this even at Christmas time. Christmas, what began as a religious ceremony, has become a secular institution almost. Uh, what what was a, a day or, or two days of worship has become a season. How often do you hear real, quote unquote, Christmas music when you're out and about? And I mean real music that celebrates Jesus Christ. You see, we we see all these things and the world likes to think about Christmas from a secular stand, and they even give thought to the fact that there's a nativity scene or, or there's a baby in a manger, they, they don't mind a child in a manger because a child in a manger is beautiful and innocent and makes no demands on your life. You see, but we know that the child in that manger was so much more of a profound truth. You see the world rejects the truth about Christ or they're indifferent to him, which is even worse. While true worshipers will ask the real question. The question is what child is this? We're going to be looking at Matthew's chapter 1 and 2 this morning. As we, and as we look, we're going to be examining these, and, and Matthew is, is proving or trying to prove to those that, who are reading his gospel that Jesus is the one true king. Now, we know, because we know the end of the story, that as king of Israel, he was rejected and despised by his people. He was crucified. He rose again on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he rules in a spiritual kingdom. And it's through the spiritual kingdom that has been offered to the Gentiles. And So He is our King and our Lord, and one day He will return in glory to take up His throne, David's throne. And what we're going to see this morning in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 is we're going to see a child of David's lineage. We're going to see a child of divinity, a child of decision, and a child of divine purpose as we look through this chapter. So let's go ahead and read And I'm going to read these sections as we talk about it rather than reading the whole two chapters at the beginning. So let's go ahead and start. And we'll read verses 1 through 17. Chapter 1 of Matthew. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Now Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezra was the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Minadab, and Aminadab was the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Now Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. Now David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was the father of Abijah, And Bajaz was the father of Asa. And Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzzah. And Uzzah was the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh the father of Amon, and Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah became the father of Jeconon and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So that's right there, verse 1 through 11, we're getting an emphasis here. And I wanted to read this to you because Matthew is dealing with two things here. He's dealing, first of all, that, that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's a, he's a fulfillment, a partial fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. If you remember in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God said he gave Abraham a land promise, a seed promise, and a blessings promise. Now, blessing promises all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Jesus is of Abraham's lineage and it's through Jesus Christ that we, the Gentiles, receive that blessing. Now, Matthew through verse 11 has given us the lineage up to and emphasizing King David. He's emphasizing David as king in that kingly lineage, and we'll continue in verse 12. Now, verse 11, by the way, was the last king that ruled Israel physically. From that point on, there were no Davidic kings. In verse 12, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconah became the father of Sheltil, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Elakim, Elakim the father of Azor, Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok was the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Elihud. Elihud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Matthew the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. So Matthew here in this genealogy, and the reason I wanted to read it is because Matthew is emphasizing the the lineage of David. He's emphasizing that this is a kingly lineage. So when you think about that child born and we see him in a manger, he was born king of Israel. And he still reigns as king of Israel. He has no heirs and he is still alive. And he will return and take up David's throne. So Matthew here is trying to show us and those that are reading it that he is the rightful heir. He's the rightful king of Israel. He's the son of David. And one thing, and the reason I stopped halfway is to see the emphasis. Over and over, he repeats David's name. Now, God had made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. How long is forever? It's forever, right? Even though there was no Davidic king ruling Israel at this time in fact, we'll get into who was King Herod, but even though there's no Davidic king, Jesus is that promised Davidic king who would rule Israel forever. So when we think about that child in a manger, the first thing we really have to come to grasp to is this child is of David's lineage. He's the king. Psalm 89, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed. I don't know if you've ever studied nobility and a lot of the English royalty. It's a newer thing for me to, to study English royalty because we don't really have any royalty in the United States. But one of the things you have to have in order to, to verify your line is a patent of nobility. For some, for some lines, it's become books where they, they've documented lineage. And this became popular in the year 1000 A.D. And they would have patents of nobility that would prove that your family was of noble lineage. Well, Matthew chapter 1 is Jesus' patent of nobility. It's to prove that He is the rightful heir, that He is the rightful king. And as Matthew would develop through his, through his entire gospel and show over and over the kingly nature and ultimately the kingly rule will be in the future. And so Matthew's purpose is to show Jesus as the son of David, the king of Israel. And he begins with this genealogy. You see, Jesus is no ordinary child. We see him in a manger and we need to think about the fact that, that he is a child of David's lineage. He is king of Israel, Right? And now, for us, He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as Gentiles, we pay homage to the King of all. Because when Jesus returns, Matthew 25, when He just returns, and He returns to Zechariah 14 to rule and reign from Jerusalem, all the world will pay Him homage. And He will rule not only Jerusalem and the surrounding areas and all of Israel, He will rule the entire earth. We call that the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So, so even as you think about the child and you think about his kingly nature, we are drawn to think about his return. How about that? That even in the picture of Jesus in a manger, it should cause us to think about his future reign and our, and our, and our reign with him. What a beautiful picture. So it's a child of, of David's lineage. Now, I also want you to see that there's a child of divinity. Look down in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And so what we have here... We have a child of divinity. So not only when you see the child and you ask, what child is this? you just say it's a it's a kingly child. Right? That should point us to the, the return of Jesus Christ the King. We should also think about the fact that this is a child of divinity. This is a the divine union of a human nature and a, and a divine nature. This is the incarnation. We should think immediately of John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Now, in this account, this narrative, we have a picture here of, of Joseph and Mary. And by the way, they're, they're betrothed. Right, and The word there for betrothed has to do with a, it's a Jewish marriage arrangement. It's very different than the way we do it. When you get engaged, you still can kind of back out. You can, you can get back the ring, ladies, if you don't want to marry the guy. Well, in, in the Jewish arrangement, a betrothal was, was a marriage almost really in, in, in name and without the physical aspects. It was, a, it was a legal document in which two families and the two marriage partners would agree to marry. The only thing that really they were waiting for is the, the husband, the, excuse me, the, the groom, he would go back to his father's house and he would add on rooms to his father's house. They would live in communal houses, and he would, he would make additions. And he, Basically, he would prepare his father's house for the time that he would go and get his bride. And then when he would go get his bride, when he was ready, he would he would gather up all his groomsmen in the wedding party, and there would be a big processional, and, and they would yell in the streets, and the groom is coming, and, and they would go, and they would get the bride, and they would have the wedding, and there would be a beautiful ceremony. And, and then... Like an Indian wedding, it would last multiple days, and, and then it, afterwards he would, they would come back to, and he would bring the bride back to his father's house. What a wonderful picture, right? That's why Jesus says, Where well, I go, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place so that I may come and bring you back. Jesus is talking about the church as his bride and as the groom, he's preparing a place. And so we have this arrangement. And, and so I, I love the way it kind of puts this in, a, in you know, just a simple term. It says that Mary was found to be ch- with child by the Holy Spirit. Like Shazam, she's pregnant. Golly, as we would say in the South. How, do, how, did, she, how did that happen? You can imagine Joseph scratching his head. Well, one thing we know, and, and, and often when I read this, I, was, I kept thinking, well, wouldn't Joseph notice? I mean, they're not going to be around each other every day. But then, in the same small town, Nazareth, I mean, you know, it's 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 you know, Nazareth's smaller than even like Port Pirie, and that's pretty small. And so you've got you got a small town. And then they, you know, did they come in contact? Well, what we find out and what what we can know is that if you remember from Luke chapter one verse thirty nine, when Mary found out that her cousin Elizabeth was pregnant she immediately left and went and spent three months with Elizabeth down in the hill country of Judea. So that, that was, that's quite a travel, and then she stayed down there for three months. And then she came back, and when she came back, she was found to be with child. And so Joseph, by being a righteous man, he didn't want to... Two things, really. He didn't want to um, embarrass her. Right? He had compassion on her. Now, the, the rules for adultery were stoning, but most people weren't stoned in that day anymore. Uh, but still, it would have been public shame. right? So he had compassion on her. Another aspect, it says he's righteous. It means that he was a man that was following the Jewish law. In other words, that he was a believer. right? And, and her explanation didn't add up. And so you could imagine him, if, if he was to marry her, then he, it would be almost a de facto admission of guilt that he was responsible for this. Plus the fact that, that with her story not adding up, he, he decided the best thing to do was to put her away quietly, which the law actually in Numbers allowed for a divorce, a private divorce in the presence of two witnesses. So he was having compassion on her. And he wanted to fulfill his own requirements before God in regards to the law. But the thing about this child... The child was not an ordinary child. The child was by the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't want to get crass because it's not like the pagan stories that you hear with Zeus and all of his exploits. This was a miraculous event by which the divine nature was joined to the human nature. Can we fully explain it? No. But this child had a divine nature and a human nature inside Mary's womb this was a miracle this is the virgin birth the question is often can you believe can you be a christian and not believe in the virgin birth and the answer is no if you don't believe in a virgin birth then you don't believe in an incarnate god you don't believe in Jesus Christ who is both the god man right You can't, if there's no virgin birth, then he's just an ordinary person. And so when you see that child there in the manger and you think about what child is this, not only is he king, but he's also divinity. He's divine, he's God incarnate. Now, Joseph, you could imagine, wanted to put her away and he had decided in his heart, but verse 20 says that. God intervened, and He said, don't be afraid. You could imagine, He loved her, and He was afraid of what, it, what, what she had done, and if her story was really, it didn't add up. I mean, who could imagine you? Someone comes to you and says, "Why well, I'm pregnant, and it was by God. God did it. I mean, that would be a little bit strange, right? As a, as a future husband, would, would you what, what would you say? What would you do? Wow. Well, God intervened. He sent an angel, he sent a messenger to reinforce and to help him to understand exactly what was going on. And he said that, do not, do not be afraid, in verse 20, to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And he actually gives a command. He said, in you, verse 21, will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, this is an allusion to Psalm 130. O Israel, hope in God, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him it is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. The problem for the Jews is they, they didn't understand that Jesus wasn't going to redeem them from the hand and deliver them from the hand of the Romans. He was going to redeem them, He was going to ransom them from their sins. Matthew 20:28, 20, "The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, they were looking for a political Messiah, and Jesus says, "I'm not going to save you. I'm not going to redeem you. I'm not, I'm not going to ransom you from the Romans. I'm going to ransom you, redeem you, save you from your sins." The great thing about this passage is not only does Matthew show us this miraculous account to prove that Jesus is of divine nature, he also shows us that it is the fulfillment of prophecy. Chapter 1, verse 23, he quotes Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah 14. And now in the chapters of Isaiah, if you read through Isaiah 7 through 9, you get a picture of of the Messiah. And when we think about Emmanuel, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, Emmanuel is more of a title than a name itself. Like Christ itself is a title. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Jesus, well, the would be bad. Jesus and Emmanuel. Use an article there. It's a title. And so, when you think about that, you think about the fact that this was, this was predicted, it was prophesied, it was foretold that, that the Messiah would come. He would be born of a virgin. In fact, even in chapter 7 through 9 of Isaiah, it says that the Messiah will, will be called Emmanuel. He will possess the land. He will thwart opponents he will appear in Galilee of the Gentiles. He will be as a great light. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And He will reign on David's throne forever. Those are just some of the, some of the things that are said about the Messiah in Isaiah 7 through 9. You see, the, it translates as God with us. And that's, what, that's the crux. If you want to know the crux of Christmas, the crux of Christmas is God with us, right? So this child this child was not only a, a kingly child, he was a divine child, and we have to accept him as such. And by the way, this was a, uh, a pre-planned pregnancy, right, if you could say that. It was pre-planned for thousands of years for this perfect moment. And we have God with us. And I was talking to a friend this week, we were talking about the Christadelphians and how they are, uh, a few of the a couple of the guys are, are getting into him at work and they want to debate him and and continue to argue with him about just spiritual matters and scriptural matters. And I, it reminded me, and I, we were in a curse of our conversation, it reminded me of uh, of a time when I worked with these Jehovah's Witnesses and they always wanted to try to picket little things that I believe because they want to they want to incur doubts. Finally, it came one day, I just looked at him and I said, "Look." The crux of the matter is I believe that Jesus Christ is God. If you do not believe that, then there's no further need for discussion. If you will accept that Jesus is God, then I will continue to discuss Scripture, but I will not discuss anything else with you until you accept that fundamental point. They never had any more discussions. They never bothered me again because they don't accept that fundamental point. That's what every cult Every heretical group they will not accept, the Word became flesh, the divinity of the child. So not only do you have the divinity of the child, you have the the kingly nature of the child, but you, you have the child that forces a response Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who had been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes and of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy." And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, of frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So here you have the Magi. Arrive in Jerusalem, now the magi were a group of, of medo Persians group of of Medes they were, they were a caste of religious men, right and in fact, they, they specialize in astrology and dreams and in the interpretation of dreams. Daniel would have been among this caste. you can read in Daniel chapter one, verse twenty, and now most likely, these particular men knew of the Messianic prophecies through the immense Jewish population still in Babylon. And one thing to remember at this time, more Jews lived outside of Israel than in Israel. And they were required once a year, or once in their lifetime, to make a pilgrimage. A large contingent of Jews still lived in Babylon. A large contingent of Jews still lived in Egypt. Okay? And so you could imagine these means they're still involved with a large group of Jews in Babylon in Persia, and they see a miraculous sign. Now, we were about to have a, a convergence of Saturn and Jupiter tomorrow. Actually, right? So it's not going to happen again until I think it's 2080. So maybe my son will be able to see it twice. Who knows? But it's not going to happen again for a long time. And it's a convergence where they're 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 basically so close together in the sky that they look like one star. Now, if you've noticed over the last month, they've gotten closer and closer and closer, and you kind of see it in the south of the sky. Now, I've heard from people that they're calling this the Bethlehem star, quote-unquote. Now, the Bethlehem star was a supernatural star, okay? right? For those people that don't accept supernatural events, there's always some kind of natural occurrence to things, If you don't accept supernatural, then there has to be some naturalistic explanation. And I'll prove to you. Look down in verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way, and behold, the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them and stood over the place where the child was. So it reappeared and it moved. It's not a supernova Right, it's done in a, a convergence of Saturn and Jupiter. It was a supernatural event. And the Magi followed this. They were drawn by the Messiah's light. They were drawn by this supernatural event to Jerusalem, which they knew was what? Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. It's where the, the king of the Jews would rule. So naturally, they're going to go there and find out where this child is. And they come. And they say, he. where is he who is born king of the Jews? Right? Now, by the way, you realize that's the same title that's on Jesus' cross, king of the Jews? So Matthew bookends his book, his gospel. The beginning, he's born king of the Jews, and he dies king of the Jews. And so, but look, look at what they did. Look at the Magi. Because the way that people respond to the child is just an example. It's indicative of how people respond to Jesus even now. The Magi, what do they do? They respond to the child in worship. They, they come and they say, we have come to worship Him in verse 2. And notice they've come at a great distance. And this would have cost, they've come at great personal sacrifice. It would have been great cost, time, energy. Finances, they would have been in danger on this journey. But also notice very importantly, and this is a very important point Matthew draws out, they are Gentiles. Gentiles are coming to worship the king of Israel, right? Right? What a wonderful statement because as as we go through the book of Matthew and if we were to keep going through this entire gospel, we would see that the Jews reject their king and then Jesus' kingdom is opened up to the Gentiles. Paul says that the gospel has come to the Gentiles so that that we would make the Jews jealous, that God is showing us His favor so that they would return and repent and believe in their true king. It's Romans 9-11. through You see, these Gentiles, they they responded to the light that they had. They wanted to worship, right? In verse 9, they, they rejoiced when they saw the star. Verse 10, excuse me, rejoiced with great joy. They came to the house, in verse 11, and listen to this, and they fell to the ground and they worshiped Him. They didn't worship Mary, by the way, as the Catholics say. They worshiped Him. They were very specific, and they offered him gifts, expensive gifts, frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And by the way, this is where we get the idea that there were only three wise men. Nobody knows for sure; could have been fifty, right? We know there are three gifts, and people have assumed because there are three gifts that they each were carrying what one each. But most likely, they traveled in a caravan. You wouldn't travel. That far with just three people for safety reasons. So who knows how many it was? We'll have to ask the Lord when we get to heaven. How many, how many magi showed up? And by the way, the scripture doesn't give us any of their names. How many of you have heard names over the years? They just made that up because they thought it sounded good. In fact, some of the names have changed over the years. We don't know their ethnicity. We don't know where they came from. We just know that other than Medes, they were magi. And they came and they worshiped, right? These are Gentiles, and they brought expensive gifts, and they worship the Lord. And that's how, that's how we should respond, right? We should respond to the child who became a man who died on a cross for our sins in worship. Right? That's Christmas. I also want you to see, look at Herod. Okay, Herod's response was very different, because instead of a response of worship, you have a response of resistance. You see, Herod, in verse 3, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, the thing about Herod, you got to realize this, he was an Edomidian, or easy way to put it is he's from Edom. For those of you that remember Edom, Edom was a long, what, adversary adversary of who? Of Israel, right? So the Jews looked at, at Herod, and rightly so, as an illegitimate king. And he had disdain for him, and he knew it, and he hated it. You see, he was declared king by Augustus Caesar, and with Roman power, he ruled. He wasn't born king of the Jews. He was installed as king of the Jews. He was also called a friend of Rome, and and he ruled from 37 B.C. onward. He was cruel, he was paranoid, he loved power, he loved building projects that would elevate his status and his name. In fact, he spent half his rule remodeling the temple. He inflicted high taxes. He was so paranoid, he had his wife, his favorite wife, by the way, is one out of ten, his favorite wife, Ramni, killed. He had three of his sons killed. had one of the high priests drowned because he opposed his rule. See, he wasn't a nice man, right? He'd definitely be on the naughty list. In fact, Caesar Augustus actually said, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son. So when it says that, that Herod was deeply troubled... And all Jerusalem with him, you could imagine that the news spread quickly that magi from the east show up and say, hey, we're here to worship the one true rightful king of Israel. This paranoid Edomite concocted a secret plan. In verse seven, he, after finding out from the scribes, and the Pharisees, excuse me, the scribes and the priests, where the Messiah was to be born, he, he secretly brought in the Magi, and he, and he tried to find out exactly when the star appeared so he'd have some kind of time frame to go off of. And then he, then he deceives them, because they don't know him. But he deceives them, and he says, and he basically repeats back to them the same thing that they had said when they showed up in verse 2. And he says, well, go and search carefully, and report back to me. And I, what, will come and worship him. Right? You lie, you lie, you lie. So he's deceiving them. And after hearing the king, they went their way. You see, Herod's secret plan involved, we know what? The destruction of the child. He rejected the child. He was working on a, a way to rid himself of this future king, and he needed more information. Herod, by the way, is a picture of how so many respond to Christ. They're bitter, they're antagonistic, they're pompous, and they hate Jesus. They don't want Him to interfere with their lives, interfere with their business, their plans. Most importantly, they don't want Him to interfere with their sin. They love their sin, and they hate the light. They would be content just to eliminate Jesus and be done with Him. If they can't do that, they're going to eliminate every trace of his existence that they can, and they will even deal with his people, those that are called Christians. After all, Jesus says, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. They'll hate you for just believing in him and following him. They may fine you. They may imprison you. Even kill you. But they will not believe because their hearts are rigid, their hearts are hardened, and they would think what they're doing is right. And that's Herod. You see a different response. Verse four: Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, "In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what had been written by the prophet." And they went on to quote Micah five, chapter chapter five, verses one and two. We see a different group, and this group is a, is a, it demonstrates indifference. Right here we have the, the priests and the scribes. And they actually quote to Herod, well, this is where the, the Messiah is to be born. They had the Scriptures. They had the, they had the truth. They had the light. But Matthew doesn't record any actions that they take. They're indifferent. They don't care. Like they're they're fine the way that things are. They may be the ones that they may sing Christmas songs and yet be indifferent to the true nature of Christ. And they, they don't want to deal with any of that Messiah stuff. They were content to, to make money and enjoy their lives, the Sadducees. It was big business. Temple was big business. Right? Jesus overturned the money tables twice. Big business. The scribes were, were lawyers, were most likely Pharisees, and for them it was religious activity. We didn't want really bothered with that Messiah stuff. We've got, we've got everything sorted right now, and as long as we do these sorts of things, we're okay, we're righteous, we're doing the sacrifices, we're, we're sons of Abraham, we're okay. You see, they were indifferent. I think the saddest thing for me is is those that are indifferent. You look at, look at so many, at least the ones who resist Christ, understand some of the claims on their life. Those who are indifferent are the ones that just, no, nah, no, nah, mate, don't bother me with that stuff. I don't want to hear about that. I just want to do my job. I just want to get paid. I just want to go get a few beers, hang out with my mates. Don't bother me with Christ stuff. Doesn't really matter. We're all going to the same place, right? Wrong. You see, they're indifferent. And so we see three types of responses in this chapter. Worship, resistance, and indifference. And then finally, you have a child of divine purpose. Verse 13, Now when they had gone, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared and told Joseph, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while there was still night, and he left for Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod, and this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. But when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. And he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and his vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. And he came and lived in a city called Nazareth. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Really quickly, we'll finish up here. I want you to see that this happened, all of this happened, according to the predetermined plan of God. Peter He's preaching in Acts, and he said, in his great sermon on the day of Pentecost, he said, "You you killed this man, and he was killed according to the predetermined plan of God. And what a great statement, because nothing happened here by accident. It was all in accord with what God wanted. In fact, let me read it to you. It says that this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. See, all this happened according to the predetermined plan of God. And one thing I want you to notice as we've read through this, every section ends with an Old Testament scripture. Matthew is emphasizing that this happened according to God's plan, according to God's emphasis. It was orchestrated by God on purpose. So when you see that child and you think, he's a king and he's God, and I've got to respond to him, but also need to know that, that there was a purpose behind this. It wasn't an accident. And we see over and over the divine involvement. How many times did an angel come? Right? It's five times. Over and over and over, the angel even warned the Magi. It's not a coincidence, by the way, that that he ended up in Egypt. It's not a coincidence that he ended up in Nazareth, the little Poda town, smaller than even Port Pirie, which I heard recently was one of the worst places to live in all Australia. I mean, what is Nazareth? Right? It's like Bethlehem. Would we even know Bethlehem if Jesus hadn't been born there? Would we even know Nazareth? Can you name another Israelite city? Israelite excuse me, Israelite town from the first century AD? Right? Would we even know of these places if it wasn't for Jesus Christ? He said it'd be called a Nazarene. By the way, the idea was that he would be of humble means that he would be a nobody and he would come out of that, right? He humbled himself. See, this was all part of God's plan. Nothing happened by an accident. This was no ordinary child. He was king. He was divine. It's a child that that forces a response, a child of divine purpose. I saw recently on the news... In Virginia, and USA, that someone put a cross with a red ribbon outside their home, along with their nativity scene and some other Christmas decorations, um, even some pagan ones like Santa Claus and the like. And they, uh, the local homeowners association, which is a lot like a council here, they they basically sent them a letter saying that you had to ha- you had to take down the cross. The cross was inappropriate at Christmas. You see, the world will reject, be indifferent to the real Jesus Christ. They want to think about that beautiful baby in the manger, but they don't have to think about the claims he has on their life. You see, they'll think about a baby in a manger for a month, but they don't want to think about the fact that he's king and he's God. right? And He's of divine purpose and he makes claims on their lives. We just went through that famous Christmas carol, what child is this? And, and in that Christmas carol, they ask the question, what child is this who is laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? What child is this? Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 tells us what child. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father and Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ is the child that grew into a man. He lived a sinless life in obedience to the law. And he died on the cross for your sins. He rose again on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And there he sits, awaiting the day when he shall return and take up David's throne. And rule and reign as king. Is David king of King and Lord of Lord of your heart? As we celebrate Christmas, I I pray that you enjoy your time, enjoy your friends, enjoy your family. I also pray that you ask yourself, what child is this? Why are we celebrating? And that you would respond in worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word. That causes us to respond in worship and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see him for who he truly is. He's not just some figurine in the nativity set, but he is born and was born king of the Jews. Our king as well. As his kingdom is extended to the Gentiles, we, and us, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that, as we see a glimpse of who He is, we see that He is divine. He's the, he's the God-man. He's God incarnate, fully man and fully God. And we thank You that it wasn't an accident that all the events of His birth and even before were pre-planned by You and in your, in your providence, in Your sovereignty, and You worked all things out to Your will. We see this in over and over in this account. And yet, Lord, we, we also see that we have to come to grips with who he really is. Help us even as his people, as your people, that we would not be indifferent, and we'd get overwhelmed by the, the secular nature of Christmas, and that we would remember Jesus Christ as Lord and God, and He deserves our worship. And we thank you that we were able to worship you this morning as your local body, as these gathered believers in your church. What a wonderful time it is. And I pray that you would help us to, to dwell on these truths as we celebrate Christmas. We pray this in Jesus Christ's wonderful name. Amen.